I'm a talkative person because I'm an SE dom. It's like my only world is the physical. My words are the only means of me getting out my meaning and intention. We'll see if I eat those words. She'll be entertaining others all the time. This is exactly where I wanted to go with it. <laughs> Do I not dare to this bump on a podcast with people can hear me. You guys ready to go? Yeah, Kate. Hello all and welcome back to the Literally No Subtext podcast with Dear Kristen. I am she and today we're going to be diving into some more questions that you guys have asked me on this Dear Kristen episode. Just a shameless plug at the beginning of this episode, Patreon, the website, has just released a new feature called Collections, which I'm really excited about. It basically means that all of the content that I've released over the last three years on Patreon can now be bulked into different collections. I've created three collections on my Patreon page. One is all of the extra content that I've ever uploaded. So there are 38 videos for you to look at if you were interested in signing up. And there's another collection where I'm commenting on my past videos and a third collection where I'm typing famous celebrities and TV show characters. So if you wanted to sign up to the Patreon and we're thinking of supporting me, first of all, we'd really appreciate that. All support is appreciated, even if you do not sign up, even if you're just listening to the pod or watching my videos, that's great. But if you were umming and eyeing about it, today would be a good day to sign up because I have those collections, which means that you can sign up today and have access to a very easily findable 38 extra videos and all of the other content that comes with signing up for the Patreon, nicely sorted out for you guys. So with that out of the way, let's get into the questions. Our first question for the day comes from Chris Stockton. He asks, as a creative writer, I have found Myers-Briggs typology to be extremely helpful when developing likable and realistic characters for stories that I've written. I was wondering what your opinions were on typology and creative writing, and if you had some tips that you would like to share, such as writing cognitive functions into character behavior. Thanks so much. Very interesting question and one that I don't think I've actively contemplated before. I think it can be helpful to use personality tools for creative writing because it can help you to create realistic characters as opposed to characters that you're writing and they just end up being versions of yourself because of yourself bleeding into the character. I think a very helpful reason that Myers-Briggs might be a good tool for creative writing is that it can basically predict the kinds of conflict that two certain personality types would have with each other because of the blind spots that they would naturally have. That being whichever character is preferring a thinking function, maybe they might have certain types of disputes with someone who's prioritizing a feeling function that look a particular kind of way. Same with someone who's preferring a intuiting function over a sensing function and vice versa. To be honest, that's certainly what I do when I'm writing my scripts, which I would consider to be some form of creative writing because I am creating characters and bring them to life somehow. That's always what gets me going is thinking about the kinds of misunderstandings, miscommunications and arguments, debates that would happen between two particular characters within a certain issue or in a certain situation. I think that I've only been able to create 16 different kinds of characters because of Myers-Briggs. I don't know if I would have been able to create such nuance to different characters if I didn't use the Myers-Briggs tool. So it is certainly a helpful tool when it comes to creating characters. And I definitely wish you well with your creative endeavors. One thing that I would just add on top of that is that I imagine when you're right, if you're writing a novel or something like that, where you're creating 
hundreds of pages with the same characters, you obviously do need to have a deeper level of nuance than something that I'm even used to doing because my skits are usually quite short and I'm usually going with the stereotypes and I usually have all 16 of them in one video, whereas you might only be writing about three or four characters. So just be careful not to stereotype too much because I would say that if you're writing a longer form story, you might lose some people if there isn't a lot of depth to each of the characters. So if you're just sort of stopping at the stereotypes, always be aware that for a gripping tale to work, it's got to evoke an emotional response from the audience, the reader, and it's got to resonate with the reader. And what we resonate with is people who struggle, people who suffer, people who go through hardships, people who go through the ups and downs of regular human life and who are inspiring to us. So who are constantly getting up and starting again, trying again, endeavoring to be better people. So I think where a gripping, relatable character begins is when, yeah, okay, maybe their flaws are coming out, but they are constantly trying to get on top of those, constantly trying to be better, constantly learning. You know, the classic coming-of-age story, growing. That's what we are drawn to as readers. So just make sure I would say that you're keeping the nuance and having growth within your characters, certainly your protagonists and even your antagonists. Obviously, for your second-hand characters, like your, your side characters, you can't have that much nuance. But I'm sure you've already got this under control. That was just me adding that disclaimer because I felt I needed to. Next question is from Halima. Hi there, Kristen. I'm Halima, an INFJ from England. Hi, Halima. Thank you for writing in. And it's lovely to meet you. Thank you for giving yourself and others this opportunity to communicate our thoughts and questions to you. My first question for you is, with the awareness you have of MBTI, do you ever find yourself typing people mentally or at least attempting to in real life situations? I find that I subconsciously slip into doing so around others, regardless of how well I know them. I wanted to know if this has ever been the case for yourself. Absolutely it has, 100%, especially when I just got into Myers-Briggs and especially when I started to learn about the cognitive functions and how helpful they were for my life and my relationships and I could see them at play in every relationship around me. I was pretty much obsessed. Everyone essentially became like a case study to me. I was like, okay, what type is this person? How are their interactions happening with the people around them? How can I tell what cognitive functions they're using? What can I learn about the cognitive function through this person? What can I learn about different personality types from mine, from this person? I was doing it all the time and I was doing it whilst watching TV shows as well. 24-7, honestly, for about the better part of two years, I was doing that. These days, not so much because I realized after a while, especially with making Myers-Briggs somewhat my job, my source of income, so it was my nine to five, and because I don't have a boss, I was allowing it to consume my life, like I was working full time and then some on YouTube and therefore always thinking about Myers-Briggs. It became really necessary for me to put in certain boundaries about how much I thought about it and how often I engaged with it. And so as a result, and as a result of just using something for like four years, you know, it's the human experience. I've, at first you're obsessed with the thing and over a while you sort of not lose interest in it, but you're interested in it relative to the other things in your life sort of balances out. So it consumes me far less these days, but it is a tool that I definitely still use in my communication and in fundamentally understanding others. I use it actively, but I wouldn't say that it's perpetually on my mind when I'm in interaction with others as it was at one point in my Myers-Briggs journey which is okay. My second question is, if you have fellow INFJ loved ones or acquaintances, what has your personal experience been like with them from your initial impressions through to your deeper understanding? 
Thank you once again for all your insightful, funny, and creative work into this intriguing realm of human personality, smiley face. Thank you so much, Halima, for that lovely question. In regards to INFJs, I'm sure I've spoken about this before, but I always like talking about it again because my understanding of type and of people is constantly evolving, as am I, and my growth in this wonderful journey of life. So I would say when I first became aware that INFJs were a thing and started typing people in my life as INFJs and then I was sort of retrospectively going back and looking at my first interactions with those people and how I felt they didn't understand me and vice versa. I really struggled with the fact that the INFJ people in my life seemed to have boxed me into a category from the get-go and they took a while to, uh, I guess, remove me from that category. For instance, a couple of people I'm thinking of thought of me as quite a surface level superficial person, which I can definitely understand how they would have reached that conclusion, given that maybe five years ago, I uh, was only starting to do introspection for the first time, like real, true, long form introspection for the first time in my life. Because uh, I was going to therapy and I had had things happen in my life that made me realize I needed to change and turn inward and start to self-reflect. So that's only probably been going on for about five years. And these people had known me prior to that. And a few of them had met me just as I started going to therapy. So I imagine I probably did seem to be quite superficial and shallow and surface level in a lot of ways. My capacity for deep diving wasn't as high as it is now. I guess what bothered me was that because I grew so quickly, uh, I then felt that I was becoming much more than that shallow person that people had perceived me to be. I could see how they had reached that conclusion to an extent, but I now had this awareness that that's how I used to be. And so you can only aware be become aware that you were ever shallow once you have gone a bit deeper and then you can look back and be like wow yeah I was quite shallow I never thought about these things therefore I must have been quite shallow but when you're actually in the moment of being shallow you don't know you're being shallow (laughs) because you don't know that there's another way to be really and so now I have the awareness of how much deeper quote unquote to put it like very basically deeper I have become and so as I was growing and I grew quite fast because I went from it was like from nothing to everything. I was doing deep dives in two books. I was neck deep in The Body Keeps the Score. And I was learning all of these concepts. I was just going to therapy every single week, pretty much. So it was a rapid growth from me. And I guess I started to become deep far quicker. And then I looked at those people who were still keeping me in that box. And I was like, why won't you let me out of that box? I am clearly deeper. But I now really understand why it took a while for people to remove me from that box but of course now I can totally understand why it would take someone a while to remove me from a box that they'd put me in Um, namely INFJs I'm talking about but just people in general because no one is thinking about you 24-7 people really only had interactions with me every now and then at social interactions and forgive them if they didn't spend the in-between time thinking about me and how deep I was or paying attention to me and what was going on in my life via social media or, or whatever I was choosing to show in my life or watching my videos or whatever so of course people weren't gonna understand that I had become deeper so to speak if they were only seeing me once every six months you know what I mean So at first I was quite annoyed at INFJs for keeping me in those boxes and for taking a while to remove me from those boxes. But now, you know, I understand from a more nuanced perspective why phenomena like that happens. And 
generally speaking now, uh, two of my closest friends are INFJs and I love both of them. They are two of the most deep women that I know. And I always enjoy chatting to them. They have immense amounts of empathy for me. And these two women I'm thinking of have actually always seen my capacity for depth. And one of them have, I've been friends with since I was in year 12, sorry, since I was 12 years old. She re- recently featured on the podcast in the INFJ episode. I think it's called A Deep Dive into the INFJ Personality featuring my friend Rebecca. Yeah, she's been my friend since I was 12 years old. And she talks about in the podcast about how she always kind of sensed that I had this genuine genuinity about me. So it's so funny how when you have your own wounds, you just project them onto others in these little microscopic ways that you aren't even aware that you're doing. And so I was putting these judgments onto the INFJs in my life. But really, there were two INFJ women in my life who have just been there for me no matter what, have always seen my capacity for love and have always seen that there's depth to me and a great capacity for emotional maturity. And yeah, they've always just shown me great amounts of love. Sometimes when I meet new INFJs, one thing that I'll think is, oh, it's going to take a while for me to break down those walls or for trust to build enough for you to tell me what you really think about that thing or to share your heart with me and all that. But I think that's just a natural and fair part of human relationships. And it's right and just that it should be that way, that it takes a while for someone to trust you. And we can't all be hard on our sleeve, no filter crimes like we ESFPs, <laughs> not to drag other ESFPs under the bus with me there. I'm not sure if I've really answered this question, but I think that uh, answer, rambly as it was, uh, should communicate my vibe when it comes to INFJs. I don't have a single bad thing to say about them, to be honest. Our next question is from Nicola. She writes, what was your experience in Korea like and why did you leave? Oh, goodness me, this could take a whole other podcast episode, to be honest. Korea. To be honest, I feel like I entered Korea as a girl and left as a woman. Korea made me grow in so many painful but welcome ways. It is a very different culture from Australia. I had such a good time there. It is a fantastic place to be young, Korea, especially if you're just there for a year or two. I originally planned to just go for one year to sort of, you know, find myself and experience living abroad. But I ended up staying for two years because the first year I had ended up signing this contract that was Well, there was a lot of fine print that I hadn't read because it was in Korean and I was so intensely excited to go to Korea in the first place and needed a job to get there that I signed the dotted line before getting someone to translate it and look at the fine print of the contract. And so what ended up happening was I entered a job that was essentially slave labor and was really bad for my mental health. I got a lot of health issues while I was there, one of which ended up in TMJ closed lockjaw, which I now have essentially for the rest of my life because I didn't even have time off enough to go to the physio when I was there to have it checked out. Nor would I have even known how to locate a physio or how to to explain to the physio what was going on with me at the time. But yeah, that happened because of stress. I had numerous iron deficiencies. I had tonsillitis like 12 times while I was over there. My mental health was lower than it ever was. My sense of self-esteem was so low. My self-image, my self-respect. 
So that's not because of career. I think that's more to do with the place that I was at in my life. It was very much a sense of escapism for me. And I liked the idea of starting over in a country where no one knew who I was and I could be whoever I wanted and no one was judging my past, like holding my past decisions against me. I had recently had a few things backfire in my face and a few consequences of my poor decisions blow up in my face in Sydney. And I really do think that at the time, though I wasn't aware, because you're never aware in the moment when you're doing something pathological, it was a way of escaping for me. And so I entered Korea as not a healthy version of myself. And so the first year was basically a write-off in terms of I was working ridiculous hours. During the weekends, I was so depressed that I didn't even like go out except to drink. I would sleep all day Saturday, go out drinking and then sleep all day Sunday, that kind of vibe. So I wasn't really living. I wasn't really experiencing the culture properly. And I was making decisions that were really bad for me. But what was really good about that first year was that I really got a backbone and I developed thick skin because of the job. It was a very strenuous job. It was a hard job. I worked very, very hard. I worked the hardest that I've worked in my life. And it was a rude awakening for me because I think up to that point, I'd I'd only worked one job. It was five years in a retail company called JB Hi-Fi, which was pretty much, it was a great place to work. And don't get me wrong, I was definitely working. But as an ESFP, working out on the floor where I just stock DVDs and CDs all day and talk to customers about films and music, and then I'm on the counter where I get to have small talk with strangers for the whole day, and I get to play whatever music I want, wear whatever I want, chat to like-minded people like myself who were also young and had this vigor for life, and it was a super chill work environment, it didn't really feel like work to me. It was... A joy. It really energized me. I always left my shifts feeling very energized, rarely ever exhausted. I really liked how fast paced the environment was. And so it very much suited my needs. And so I basically lived my life, I guess, being a little bit comfortable. Um, I'd done well in school. I'd done well enough in a university. I'd been working in that comfortable job for a while. So it was a very rude awakening to move to Korea where I had to start work in that job that broke me and I have a lot of regrets mostly about not going to the physio because now I've got this chronic pain injury for the rest of my life but I think I learned a lot about life and I learned a lot about growing up and I was forced to mature and I was forced to become an adult in that job Uh, I had responsibilities I had to take care of my health in certain ways that I'd never learned before I had to do laundry I had to pay rent for the first time in my life because I'd lived with my parents up until then So, I mean, that's all kind of separate to the Korean culture in general. Like that could have happened in any country that I went to. The Korean culture was wonderful for me. I still, to this day, will go into a Korean barbecue restaurant or even one of those little Korean ajima restaurants and feel at home in a way. And Korean food is some of my favorite food on the planet. When I hear my k-pop playlist from back in the day before i culled k-pop for moral reasons i feel all warm inside i have so many positive associations with korea i think a lot of negative things happened to me there and i had to learn a lot of hard lessons but that was mostly to do with who i was as a person and my lack of self-awareness and lack of that worldly wisdom 
that made me go through those things, I think it was less to do with the country itself. I'm very excited to go back to that country. And I've told my fiance, Andrew, that we will absolutely be taking a holiday there sometime. Oh, what I wouldn't give to just spend a day there and go to all my favorite spots and go to Hongdae exit nine and just go explore for the night. Anyone who lives in Korea knows what I mean by that. There was also this really wonderful thing about being in Korea, which was that all people my age, fellow foreigners my age who were living there, we all had this sense of free-spiritedness for us to have left our family and enter a completely different culture. It requires a certain romanticism in how you see the world. And I remember we would get together for nights and just drink and, you know, have snowball fights and go hang out on the street and meet people and go clubbing and all that. And it just felt like the world was our oyster. And it was very much a point where we all felt like like we were emerging from our cocoons, to use the most cheesy metaphor, and becoming butterflies. And it was around each other. So we would sit there and talk about our dreams and we would revel in the fact that we were young and that literally anything was possible. And there was this really innocent way of loving that you can only have at that point in your life that we were able to share with one another. And that is absolutely priceless. And so the people with whom I experienced Korea are like lifelong legacy friends to me. I still do snail mail with some of them. I have group chats with some of them. I've invited some of them to my wedding. I still chat every day to one of my best friends who worked that first job with me. Korea was one of the best decisions that I made. I love that I was able to leave my comfort zone and learn how to be an adult while simultaneously having some of the best times of my life. And it was very God-ordained for me, I think. I don't think I would be the woman I am today without having gone through what I did in Korea. I think certain elements of my life beforehand were quite sheltered, but being in Korea really allowed my worldview to expand and I came back way more open-minded than I'd ever been. But in, this, in regards to the second part of your question, why did I leave? After that second year, and the second year was absolutely just insanely cool. I had a much better job. I had a much better salary. I had a lot more friends. I was doing hobbies outside. So I was doing dancing and fitness and aerial yoga and all these cool things that I never would have thought I could do, but you could do them over there because not only was it super cheap to do everything, but it was also you also believed that you could do all these things because I really felt like I could do anything in that country. I And the people I was around made me believe I could do anything. So it was a feeling that just I'll never be able to recreate I think that very specific feeling of I can do anything the world is my oyster nothing is mapped out for me there is a thousand there are a thousand possibilities I'm still young my body is capable of anything and I'm really grateful that I used those years those years of my early 20s to do that because I will never be in my early 20s again and I'm just really glad it was hard to get over there very hard for a number of reasons but I'm glad that I pushed through and did it But yeah, that second year, after I'd done that second year and experienced the culture and experienced living as a independent adult for the first time in my life, which is the reason I went over there in the first place. It was never a, I might stay here indefinitely. It was, uh, I'm going to learn, I'm going to grow, I'm going to experience. So by that second year, when I'd really felt like I'd lived up the Korean experience for a while, I started to feel like, 
okay, now I'm just stunting my growth by staying here. By the end of the second year, I felt like um, in terms of professionally, creatively, socially, I'd felt like I'd grown as much as I needed to there and it was enough for me to return. And I was starting to have that feeling of the longer I stay away from Sydney, the further I'm going to grow from the people who I really care about in Sydney. And I was starting to have that feeling of now my growth is being stunted. I need to go back so that I can start to catch up with all my peers. Because, you know, I was starting to see on Facebook that people were getting engaged, buying houses. They had a lot of money. They were, you know, having children, all that kind of thing. And I think at the time that really was some a, an element of it that pressured me to come back. Now, in hindsight, I look back and I was like, oh, that was so stupid because I was literally 25 when I came back. The world was still my oyster. I didn't need to come back. But, you know, hindsight is 2020. And at the time, there's a reason why you can't see 2020. You just have to go with your gut. You have to go with that FI and I. <laughs> and it's something that I felt so clearly within me. I, I always know how I feel about things and what is right for me based on, I guess, the FI, the emotions. I feel it in my soul. It resonates. It's a feeling that I can't explain necessarily, but I feel it and it's there. And I just felt that. I was like, I feel like my time here is done. I've grown the most that I possibly could have at this time in my life. I want to go back and nurture the relationships that I care about in Sydney with these new tools that I've been given, having grown. I want to see what exciting possibilities there are for me in Sydney. I want to start my life in Sydney properly now because I've always known that I wanted to live in Australia for the rest of my life. So it was kind of like delaying growing my real life in Sydney because that's where I knew my future was going to be. That's just a feeling I had. And, you know, there are certain things about living in a country when you know it's not forever and there are certain things about about Korea that make it really hard to decide to live there forever in my opinion for instance it's very hard to become a citizen or a permanent resident over there that's just one factor but yeah there are certain things about living in a country that you know isn't going to be your home long term that start to bother you like the fact that I couldn't invest in proper furniture or clothes or building a home because I knew I was going to leave eventually. So what was the point in doing any of that? And I just wanted to come back and, and start to really build my life. But I would say another really important factor was that I felt like I was becoming a worse person over there. And this is probably the biggest factor, if I'm honest. Certain things had happened during my stay in Korea that had really plunged me into the deep end, the dark pit of realizing how dark humanity and the world could be and I wasn't equipped to handle those sorts of realizations about the world and about people so I handled them in really poor ways like drinking partying engaging in basically just pure se <laughs> and there are really beautiful people in Korea and the culture is fantastic at the same time, anyone who's been there will tell you that it is probably the easiest place to distract yourself. Anything you could possibly want in Korea, you can get at your fingertips and have delivered to your door within 30 minutes, or you can get access to it within 30 minutes. It is, in my opinion, quite an indulgent culture. There are so many options at your fingertips, so much technological advancement and reliance on technology for the individual as well. Like everyone just is on their phone 24 seven. Sorry, I shouldn't say 24 seven, but generally speaking compared to Sydney, like I'll tell you that when I came back, multiple people in my 
life noticed that I was on my phone way more than they'd ever remembered me being. And I noticed it in myself as well. And I had to go on this big detox of my phone when I came back. My addiction to my phone was next level having been in Korea. The Instagram culture, the fact that everything is just aesthetic. This stuff is all rampant in Korea. It's fantastic. It's wonderful for a lot of reasons, but it's basically very easy to distract yourself. And as an ESFP who's prone to distracting myself anyway, but with the added factor of now everything that I could possibly want for my senses is at my fingertips, I wasn't leading a very good life there. As a result, I was becoming a worse person. That's not to say that Korea makes people bad people. I'm just saying for that particular time in my life and who I was and where I was in my journey and how weak I was in a lot of areas, it wasn't good for me to stay there at that time. Halfway through my second year, I went through a particularly bad breakup that broke me. And after hitting rock bottom for the final time, I didn't even know there was a bottom that was more bottom than that rock bottom. I decided to pray again, and that started my reconversion to the faith. And so in the second half of my second year in Korea, which was my last sort of six months there, I was beginning my very slow reintroduction to my relationship with God and getting to know him again and my faith again. And in getting reacquainted with God and starting to experience emotion again, because for a long while I had felt emotionally numb, Suddenly, this desire to be back in touch with my family, this desire to get in touch with my roots, the desire to go back and start again and be a better person was really starting to grow within me. And my soul was basically just calling out for me to leave and return to the place where I knew I would be for the rest of my life, God willing. And so I finished up my contract and I enjoyed my last few months in Korea. And then I came back to Australia. And that's when I enrolled in my Master's of Theology. And then I did that for two years with tutoring on the side. And as I mentioned before, I submitted my thesis at the end of those two years. And that's when my YouTube channel blew up. So the rest is history. So in short, I went there to, quote, find myself, which was really a form of escapism. I did find myself when I was there. I learned what I cared about. I learned who I was. I learned what my values were. And I left because I felt like I had done the growth that I needed to over there and it was time to return home so that I could resume a meaningful life. I could have said that from the outset, but instead I talked for, what, 20 minutes? <laughs> I could obviously get into more details about what the actual experience of the Korean culture was like, the ups and downs, but I don't know if that is, I don't know if this is the time and the place right now. <laughs> So we'll just move on to the next question. This one is from Casey. What are some questions one can ask others to get a sense of how they perceive and judge information? Preferably one that doesn't simply ask, what do you believe in? Since it seems our cognitive functions work largely in the subconscious and self perceptions are often skewed. Good question. I'm of course not going to be able to give you an answer that will work 100% of the time because it's all about how you perceive the answer of the question as well. And I can't tell you how you're going to perceive such answers. But for me, if you're going to be in conversation with people, generally speaking, and again, you can hear all of this in my How to Type People in the Wild episode that is up on my podcast channel. I would generally, if I'm deliberately trying to see whether someone is a certain type, I'd probably go for the PJ axis. So are they a perceiver or a judger first and foremost? And ways that I would use to tell this is by asking questions that require a solidified answer of some sort 
in regards to their opinions about things, their visions about things, their thoughts about things. The should questions, because perceivers are going to give more fluid answers and judges are going to give more solidified answers because they generally would have an idea of how things should be. Or they will at least seem frazzled if they don't know how to answer the question. P's, because they are just generally more open and go with the flow types, will less likely be rattled by questions and they're probably happier to give more vague answers. They might not even have answers and that's not going to bother them too much because that's just how they're used to being. So that questions might look like, what do you think should happen when this situation happens? What do you think people should do in this circumstance? What do you think the government should do, i.e. this political issue? What are your plans for your life? Where do you see yourself in five years? Of course, that doesn't account for people who have had for some outside reason to come up with those kinds of answers. But generally speaking, if you ask these kinds of questions over a variety of subject matters, you will get a sense for whether a person is more fluid in how they answer or more structured in how they answer. I don't know if this was clear. With feelers and thinkers, you're going to want to see if they're attuned to emotional cues in the room or not. Foremost, with extroverts, introverts, are they responding first or dwelling first? Do they respond immediately or do they respond with silence? And with sensing and intuiting, you're going to want to take a look at what they're paying attention to. NI users, I generally find in conversations, NI users will be asking the why questions. NE users will be happy to jump from topic to topic. That is an extremely vague description of each of the functions and how you can tell with observable tells. These are the kinds of tells that I use to create the skits that I do. They're tells that I have noticed, but I wouldn't take that as gospel and I would use your own methods of noticing things in people because me describing that to you, words can't do justice to the concept that I'm trying to articulate in those sentences that I've just said. You are going to perceive what I've just said in certain ways that might be inaccurate to how I meant them. So... It's kind of up to, you know, what do you notice? Take what I say with a pinch of salt. Maybe take it on next time you're in a conversation, see what you notice, but it might not, those, those ways might not work for all of you. And that's totally fine. We all have a different journey when it comes to type and typing people. Next question is from Amaryllis. I'm pretty sure I'm an ENTP from what I've read on the cognitive functions, but why am I so tired of human interaction all the time? I sometimes feel like I'm using my friends for idea vessels or rants about random topics. You and me both. <laughs> no, to the first part of that question. Why do I get tired of human interaction all the time? Keep in mind that extroverts don't just get their energy from people per se. That's the modern understanding of extrovert and introvert, that extroverts get their energy from people and introverts get their energy from being by themselves. Those definitions are just not even nearly nuanced enough, I said, having just given vague answers to the previous question. In that, yeah, you might be able to say something like that vaguely when it comes to extroverts and introverts, but it's not entirely accurate, especially when we compare it to what the Myers-Briggs model teaches us. Keep in mind there are four different extroverted functions and each four of those functions get their energy from a different source. So you're going to have extroverted feelers who are more likely to get their energy from just being with people, being around people, like showing up for people. But then you've got extroverted sensors who are getting their energy from interacting with the sensory world around them. So it's not people, 
it's the sensory world, it's the experiences, though they probably will like to share that with people, but it's not the people in and of themselves that are giving the SE user their energy. Then you've got extroverted intuitors who get their energy from exploring ideas and possibilities. And then you get extroverted thinkers who are getting their energy from implementing and following systems in the environment that contribute to functionality. It's entirely likely that the latter three of those four categories would lose energy from certain types of people or from certain types of conversation. I, for instance, do lose energy in conversations that are either way too philosophical and cover subject matter I do not care for, especially when they're doing a super deep dive and I lose interest, or small talk. The only time I love small talk was when it's in a party environment and there's no expectation to sit and stay in that conversation because it means that I can flit from conversation to conversation, tell some jokes, have some banter, share a drink, have a feed and move on. But I get drained if I'm sitting at a table and the conversation is just small talk for an elongated period of time or deep topics about which I have no interest knowledge or care. It's entirely likely that certain NE doms would also get drained being around people if there are a lot of small talk conversations, if the bouncing from idea to idea is not tolerated or accepted in that particular social space, if there are certain social expectations placed on the NE person, that probably would drain them, especially if they're ones that they can't fulfill, especially if they're situations in which they feel very misunderstood. And I definitely know a lot of TE doms who get drained from being in conversations with people because they just wanna be doing things or getting the next goal achieved. <laughs> So any of those factors could be a reason why you lose energy being around people. Maybe FE doms are the same. I think extroverted feelers probably lose their energy when they have given too much of their energy meter or love meter to people. They probably need to recharge and be alone for a little bit. But FE doms are for sure of all the types. And I don't just mean FE dom soz. I mean soz. I just said soz. I don't mean just FE doms. Sorry. I mean FE auxiliary users as well. They are the types who are the slowest to lose energy when around people, no matter what task they're doing or conversation they're having, in my experience from what I've noticed. So just because you lose energy in certain conversations does not mean you are not, in fact, an extrovert. Keep in mind that the Myers-Briggs extroverted functions have different definitions from the regular modern day understanding of what extrovert means. We'll probably have time for one more question and then I need to go because I'm having a wine night with my gal pals. Okay, this one is from Ellie. I've had this INFP, ISFP friend for a few years now. I guess, I'm guessing Ellie does not know whether her friend is an INFP or ISFP. I often find myself struggling to cheer him up. Sometimes he's too harsh on himself or feels down and it could be for the silliest of reasons and my instinct is to make him feel better, of course. I try my best to find the right things to say, but I feel like I often fail. He may acknowledge my words, but then continue with dot, 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 but still dot, dot, dot. Do you have any advice on how I should approach this problem? I really don't want my friend to feel down. I am an ISTP slash INTP. P.S. I listed the types in order of preference since we both pretty much get 50-50 on S and N. First is the type we lean more towards. Love all your videos, Ellie. Yes, very interesting topic. That is so interesting. I have particularly noticed with FI DOMs, particularly INFPs, though I only have one close ISFP friend, so I can't say this for certain, but FI DOMs seem to definitely have that 
tendency to stew in the feeling for quite a long time. They are quite private about it and can hold their cards close to their chest often. But when they do choose to share or vent or rant about their feelings to someone, first of all, it means that you are a very trusted friend. So that's fantastic. But second of all, it can mean that they can talk for quite a long time about it, especially INFPs I tend to notice. And I think that is because they are going through such a rich emotional experience that they want to convey the nuance of their particular experience, theirs specifically, because the FI experience is feeling that no one fundamentally understands what you're going through because your experience is inherently unique from everyone else's. So there's this desire to talk it out and explain in detail what they're going through. And I relate to this, by the way, as an FI user. At the same time, there's a tendency to stew in the feeling and to be indulgent in how much you're going to offload onto others. So it's nice to talk about the feeling and to have an audience and to offload because it helps you to process as well in a lot of ways. But speaking from experience, I've definitely felt like I can sometimes dwell too much in the FI feeling. I usually have methods of getting out of the feeling and reimmersing myself in the world and getting on with the day, but I have noticed with FI DOMs that they feel things richly and slowly. So they might take days to process things before they even want to bring it up with someone even that they trust a lot. So the first thing to mention is if they've chosen to share with you, they definitely trust you and that's wonderful and that trust ought to be held in the palm of your hand with utter fragility, just as anyone else's trust should be. But this is a very fair question. I think something that a lot of probably T types would say about FI users is that logic does not resonate. Solutions do not resonate. They just seem to want to talk about the feeling ad nauseum. <laughs> the truth is when we are sharing a feeling, and I know I'm only an auxiliary FI user, but I feel like I can relate to this a lot. Because when I was really going through something like breakups or something, I would stew for hours and days and every single day I would need to talk about my feeling for like hours. All we are looking for, if we are sharing that feeling with you, is to just share it. We don't need solutions. We just need it to exist in a space where the person isn't going to tell us we're crazy, isn't going to try and fix the problem. They're just going to listen and they're just going to validate. I know it's a lot to ask, especially for a T user. And this is part of the journey of learning MBTI and learning when to cut that hose pipe off <laughs> when you are stewing a little bit too much and offloading a little bit too much on other people. But if you are in a situation where that is happening with a friend, it is always, always, always better to avoid offering solutions or even alternate perspectives. Because when we are deep in a feeling, we don't want to see those perspectives. We're not there to hear those perspectives. We just want our feeling to be validated and to express our feeling. Because regardless of those alternate perspectives, the truth is that we are still feeling the type of way that we are. And the alternate perspectives don't really change that. Of course, it's up to the nuance of the situation, of course. Like if I feel hurt by a particular friend, I might go to a trusted source and unpack it with that person in order to understand my friend's perspective so that I don't offload it and take it out on my friend who's hurt me. And in that case, I am seeking a different perspective, but not all the time. And sometimes it's a lot about the language that you use with FI users. So rather than being like, well, you're not seeing this side of the coin. 
being like, yeah, that's really interesting and completely understandable that you feel that way. Do you think maybe this other person was feeling this type of way? So kind of throwing it back at them and asking as a question so that you're basically saying you're valid, you're fair, your emotion is allowed to exist. I'm going to let you be the one to decide whether this could be a factor. It tells us subconsciously that you're valuing our perspective and that you still recognize that we are a person with a valid perspective. Because often when we vent out our feelings, the reason why we're so fragile in that moment is because on a level, we believe that our feelings are either too much or they make us maybe evil or like we are too emotional or we are a bad person or if everyone knew our feelings they would not want to be our friends anymore so when we have that feeling validated or when someone engages in a conversation where they're asking our opinion about things it makes us feel like this is great this is a safe space this person doesn't think I'm crazy they still think I'm a valuable person who can offer some wisdom or perspective here I know some of you might perceive that as ridiculous and that's fair enough, but when an FI user is emotional, that can be the kind of stuff that's going through our heads, subconsciously or consciously. So from an external perspective, being in conversation with an FI user, offering perspectives and solutions is not the first route that you should take, in my opinion. It should always just be listening and validating. So using language like, I'm so sorry, that's so fair. What did that feel like? And asking further questions to get some nuance on the situation. These all give the impression to the FI user that you care, you want to know, and that most importantly, their feeling is allowed to exist and it is safe to exist in your friendship, in that space. That being said, if you're an FI user and you're listening, be aware that it's not always healthy to talk about your feeling for hours and hours at a time. And it is definitely not always fair to offload that feeling onto someone else, especially if they are not a fellow FI user. So we are all in charge of knowing ourselves and knowing what healthy or unhealthy behaviors or tendencies we skew towards and getting on top of those to make sure that we are loving others in our life in the best possible way. With that having been said, that is all I have time for today. I'm going to go off and enjoy, enjoy some cocktails and wine and cheese platters with my gals. But I appreciate you guys listening. You all rock. As usual, if you have time to rate this episode, I'd really appreciate it. Didn't think I'd be going as deep as I did into my time in Korea, but I hope you got something out of it. Feel free to reach out to me in a DM if you like this episode or to give you feedback. I really, really value that because we don't have comments on these episodes except on the YouTube channel, which is it's now not exactly new anymore, but it is available. So if you want to leave a comment, go to the Literally No Subtext with Dear Kristen YouTube channel and leave a comment on the episode. Otherwise, please consider rating the episode. It does really help me out. If you'd like more Myers-Briggs content, jump on over to my main channel, Dear Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N, to watch my skits. And please, please share them around if you find them interesting. Share this episode around if you found it interesting. And also feel free to follow me on Instagram at dear.kristen. Instagram is very much where I share more of my personal thoughts and passions because it's not a revenue source for me at all so I can be my unapologetic self on there <laughs> once again thank you so much for listening guys I really appreciate you submitting the questions and thanks to the people who submitted this episode's questions and until next time have a beautiful blessed few weeks bye bye